into Deuteronomy. I've never dug into any of the first five books like this. That's not true either. I just keep saying things. Genesis. <laughs> I studied through Genesis pretty hard, <laughs> but not Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy. How about that? <laughs> uh, but this is unique. It's, it's really helping uh, bring some clarity to some things I really didn't think about. It wasn't like there was a lack of clarity. It was just a lack of study. And, and then as you begin to dig these things out, and you're like, where did they wander during those 40 years? And, and how did they get there? And why are they going this way? And it's, all those things are answered. And you begin to see some of, the, some of the things that the Lord is revealing through this that become very uh, impactful and, uh, and remind us, uh, both of our weakness, of the greatness of the Lord's mercy. Um, so hopefully today, as we look at Deuteronomy 2, uh, this will bring some clarity uh, to the narrative, and it will be convicting to us um, as we see these things. So, uh, real quick review of last week, if you were not here. Um, basically, we looked at Deuteronomy 1. Uh, in Deuteronomy 1, it, it starts out with um, Moses talking about where he is, what he's about to do, what he's saying. There's, and we talked about the precision of the exposition. Um, God tells us exactly why this has been written, exactly what Moses is saying, and where he is, and when he's saying it, and all of that. Um, after that, uh, the first thing he does is revisit the Abrahamic covenant, because that's what God's about to do. He's about to fulfill the things that he swore to Abraham 400 and something years before, right? Yeah, well, more than that, 500 and something years before. And uh, he's, he's going to bring Israel into the land, uh, which you could say is uh, the, the, the beginning of the fulfillment. Is still, we're waiting for the complete fulfillment, just like in all of the covenants. But God is proving that he does what he says he does. He's bringing Israel into the land. He's made them into a nation. He is fulfilling his covenant that he said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's a major focus because, again, you're going to see that throughout Deuteronomy and any time in the Old Testament when you see the land, the land, the land, the land, over and over and over. It's referring to the covenant that God made uh, with Abraham that he would bring uh, Abraham's people into the land, that they would be a nation and they would be in the land forever. All the earth would be blessed through them. Um, and, uh, and that is the Abrahamic covenant. So we talked about that. We talked about the, uh, the it's an 11-day journey uh, from Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, to Kadesh Barnea, which is where we left the Israelites at the end of chapter 1. Well, kind of, it's about 100 miles. It's not that far. Uh, and it's about an 11-day journey. They got up to Kadesh Barnea. Uh, and that's a very uh, important place name to know from the Old Testament because it's, first thing, it's just going to be referred to many times in Deuteronomy, but a lot of stuff happened there. The main thing that happened there is they sent 12 spies into uh, Canaan from Kadesh Barnea. Um, and the spies went in. They saw the, the, the kingdoms, the cities, the people. Uh, they brought back, you know, uh, an abundance of fruit and said it's a very fruitful land. And, and it is beautiful and it is flowing with milk and honey. But he said that they said that the people are huge. Uh, they were terrified of them. The cities were fortified, well fortified. And basically uh, 11 of the or, or 10 of the 12 spies that went out said, this is impossible. We can't do this. And in fact, in their fear and in their lack of trust of the Lord, said the Lord's brought us out here to kill us, which, again, that's not what God said he did. He said he brought them out there to give them the land. Um, and so their bad report um, of, of everything caused the first generation to rebel and grumble, not trust the Lord. And so they decide they're not going to go in. Then the Lord pronounces a curse against that first generation. Uh, and, he, and he says to them, since you, you, know, you, you say I've brought you out here to die and your children are going to die and all that, then you, uh, this first generation of Israel, will not go into the land. And I'm going to lead your children into the land. And that was the beginning of the 40-year the wandering. Uh, and the whole point of them wandering around the desert is for everyone that's 20 years and older that came out of Egypt that was there at Mount Sinai that took that oath saying that we will be your people um, and, and you will be our God uh, for them to, to all die. And when they're dead, he's going to lead their children into the promised land. So over the next 40 years, that's what's happening. It's 40 years of wandering in a very small area uh, for an entire generation of people to die other than Caleb and Joshua. They'll be the only two from that initial generation that walk into the promised land. Even Moses uh, is going to die uh, before then. And that's because of things that happened at Kadesh Barnea. So all that being said, then we had, I think we talked about at the very end, the deadly sorrow, where, you know, we talked about that from Second Corinthians. After the curse is pronounced, after he says you're not going to go into the land, then all the people say, well, now we'll do it, you know. And again, continuing in their disobedience to the Lord, 
but now a disobedience that's masqueraded as you know, righteousness and obedience and submission. And God t- says, don't go up. These people are big. Like you said, they're bigger than you. They're fortified, and they're going to destroy you, and I'm not going to be with you. But they rebelled against the Lord again, tried to go take the land in their flesh, if you want to say it that way, or in their own power, and they were immediately squashed uh, by the, the Amorites or the Canaanites living in the land, and they drove them out as far as Horma, which I guess is really where we left off in chapter 1. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. And like I said, this first part of Deuteronomy is really a historical. It's, it's four chapters that kind of give you the history of what's happened. It's all for the preparation of the second generation as they're about to go into the promised land. And, he, and Moses is reminding them of their, their parents' mistakes, of the promises of the Lord, and he's calling them to trust the Lord, uh, to be faithful to the Lord. The Lord will be faithful to his word. He's going to do what he said, and, and don't follow in the footsteps of your parents that didn't trust him, that grumbled and rebelled and all of that. And so that chapter 1, we see uh, the, the, the parents' uh, disobedience. And chapter 2 pretty much begins at the end of the 40-year wandering. He doesn't cover what happened in the desert over those 40 years, because I guess it's just not worth mentioning. And uh, it's, it's time to go into the land. And he's taking what they, he's saying, this is what your parents did at Kadesh Barnea. Here's where we are right now. We're about to do the same thing. Don't do what they did. That's kind of the, the point of the next two chapters. And so chapters two and chapter three are the Israelites getting from Kadesh Barnea to the plains of Moab, which is where these sermons that we're looking at are, are, are actually being spoken. Moses is speaking to the Israelites on the plains of Moab. He's given them three different sermons, three different expositions, and all of them are purposed to prepare their hearts and their minds uh, to go in and take the land. And it's calling them to be faithful to the Lord because, uh, um, because uh, he will do what he's said he will do. So chapter 2, chapter 3 focuses on the end of the judgment of the first generation is the beginning of the faithfulness of the second generation who will go in and, and uh, take the land that the Lord is giving to them. Uh, and it shows their first, the first two battles that are on the other side of the Jordan between two different Amorite kings that are east of the Jordan River, which really become sort of like a test for the second generation. Do, are you going to trust me? Will you do what I say? And they go and they take two very powerful kingdoms the east side of the Jordan, um, and, uh, and it's almost like I said, it's like a, a testing ground for taking the whole land, and it proves to them that God is faithful. Um, they shouldn't have been able to, to do this. And so chapter 2 begins with Israel leaving Kadesh Barnea again uh, near the end of their 40-year sentence. Um, after 38 years, the Israelites were basically uh, prepared by God, both through the death of their, their parents and through the preparation that Moses is giving them to go in and take the land. Um, and they're going to today, we're going to see them, they're going to pass through three different territories of brethren. They're going to go through Edom, they're going to go through Moab, they're going to go through Ammon, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And then they're going to enter into enemy territory, which is the Amorites, um, and they're going to engage in war with Sion, king of Heshbon, which is an Amorite king. And I'll tell you more about that soon. But it's good to kind of see the map before we begin. Because can you see that? Let me see. I think I got a blown up one that might help. All right. So, so this is the land of Canaan. Now, again, to me, this helps everything. It makes so much more sense when you can see it. And I, and I wish... I had been there before, and I could tell you more about it. But I, I was studying this all week, and it was, it was just making things click, okay? So there over here in Canaan, actually, it's off the map. There's Kadesh Barnea at the very bottom. And so that, that is where they were when they sent the 12 spies out into the land of Canaan. And, uh, and then, you know, the Amorites drove them out, or the Canaanite, Amorites, Canaanites, and Amalekites. The Amalekites were here. Uh, Amorites were here. These were the groups that drove them out that first time when they tried to go in on their own. Does that make sense? They drove them down to Horma, which is down south of here. So now they've come back up to Kadesh Barnea. So they're in this little area again. And God is going to call them to go over here to the land of Moab up in this area. Does that make sense? What's going to happen today, though, is they're going to, instead of going through Edom this way, they can't go through Edom. God doesn't allow them, and the Edomite king doesn't want them to. So they're going to circle around the land of Edom, and they are going to come through it right through here. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then you're going to have these rivers that you're going to hear. Uh, the, um, the river of Zered, which is right here, 
Uh, then you're going to have this river Arnon, which is right there, and, uh, there, and, and Jabbok, which is up there. So you're going to see them going through the land of Edom. This is Esau's kingdom. So Esau, remember Esau, which is um, uh, Jacob's brother from way back in the day? Well, God gave Esau and his descendants a piece of land, and it's here. Does that make sense? So God gave them this. It belongs to them. Uh, Moab is one of the, the sons born of Lot. Remember Lot and his daughter, and they had the incestuous relationship after uh, um, uh, the what? Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes. And so the Lord gives uh, Moab, Lot's grandson, land. God said, this is your land. And the same thing with Ammon. Ammon was another one of, uh, sorry, Lot's son. Uh, the other son born of the incestuous relationship. So God gave the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, which would all be uh, uh, relatives of the Israelites, these pieces of land. That's important because we don't think of kingdoms like that. We just think, you know, there's a kingdom, and then somebody else throw, overthrows the kingdom, and this person owns the land for a while, and then they overthrow it. And, but God has set up all kingdoms. There's a beginning and an end to every kingdom. God outlines where they're going to be and all that sort of stuff. We just don't have the insight into what God's doing. You know, we don't know who's going to take over this land after us if, if that happens. But God knows. But God does say multiple times in, in Scripture that he's giving a certain people group a certain piece of land for a certain period of time. Does that make sense? Israel is one of them. Now, they're the only ones that get the land forever. It's an everlasting covenant that this land right here... God has allotted to Israel to be theirs forever, which means it belongs to them now. They're just not in it because of their disobedience to the Mosaic Covenant, but it's still theirs. It's God's land. They will be there. They must come back, and they must actually inhabit the whole thing, which they've never inhabited that entire piece of land. So again, we're saying all that because God said those things. We have to just trust him. We're the ones that are like, well, they're not there now, or the ones that are there are disobedient, or they never really inherited the whole land. And we were like, oh, that's just impossible. How are they going to do that? But we have to trust the Lord will do that. And he gives us little insights in Scripture. You know, we have Ezekiel 38 where he says, if I, if I have to raise them from the dead and march them in, they're going to they're gonna be in the land. So we have to remember our God is bigger than time. He's bigger than death. He's bigger than all the little things that we feel like make it impossible for Israel to inherit that piece of land forever. He's going to do it. But then he's given some other people pieces of land for a time. And Edom, Moab, and Ammon, he gave those sections of land to their descendants for a time. And that matters because it's going to be part of this, this narrative today. So it's just good to kind of see that on the outside. And then as you start reading scripture, a lot of this makes sense. Um, so I'm getting ahead of myself, but at least see that. We'll come back to this map a few times. I had another map that I forgot to put in the slide, but maybe I'll show it to you next week. But here's what we're going to do today. We're going to start out with uh, what, well, we're just going to read through the, the chapter and, and see what it says. But we're going to start out with the Israelites leaving Kadesh Barnea, and they're going to circle around Edom, all right? Now, before setting out, Numbers 14 uh, and Numbers, yeah, Numbers 14, Numbers 20, I guess 14 through 20, give us a little more insight into what is happening. So in Numbers 14, verse 45, I think I have this up here, it says, the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country... So this is talking about the first generation. The Amalekites who lived up here and what was it? I, I can't remember what I just read. It's not the Amorites, right? Amalekites and Canaanites. Canaanites are just the inhabitants of the area. So these people drove uh, the first generation that tried to go up on their own from Kadesh Barnea down into Horma. So that's below that map. Uh, so they drove them out. It says they came down, they struck them, they beat them down as far as Horma. In Deuteronomy 144, where we left off last week, the same thing. The Amorites, who lived in the hill country, came out against you and chased you as bees do and crushed you from Seir. See Seir right there in the land of Edom, all the way down to Horma. So basically just saying all of us. They, we just got driven out and, and, and shoved down into the desert. Um, and so that's where we left them off. They're in Horma. Now, so, between Horma and then getting back to Kadesh Barnea, this is 38 years of the Israelites wandering in the desert. We don't know where they went. We don't know the exact route of the journey or anything like that. There's not a lot in Scripture about the 38 years other than the Lord blessed them and took care of them. Their sandals didn't wear out and all that sort of stuff. We know everyone died from the first generation. We know all the... He almost... Uh, 
almost had the exact same population come into the land. But they were driven out after the incident. The Amorites drove them out. Remember the Amorites. That's going to come up over and over. And they spent 38 years wandering. The first generation dies off. They arrive back at Kadesh Barnea. And the second generation now is going to be called to go in and take the land. So a lot happened in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. 38 years of history that aren't written down there. Does that make sense? And so now we're going to pick up. Well, actually, Numbers 20 gives you a little more insight. Numbers 20, starting in verse 1, it says, The sons of Israel, the whole generation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. So they're back. It says, Now Miriam died there and was buried there. After that, if you keep reading, that's when Moses, um, God tells him to uh, speak to the rock there in Kadesh Barnea. Instead of speaking to it, he hits it. And God tells Moses, because you've disobeyed me. Um, and, uh, and, and he says, um, he makes him little in the sight of the people. He didn't trust what the Lord says. He, he hits the rock, says, speaks to it. Moses, at that point, is now not going to be able to go into the promised land either. Um, and, uh, and then at the very end of Numbers 20, this is important too because it helps you see what's about to happen. In Numbers 20, verses 14 through 21, it says, From Kadesh, uh, Moses sent messengers to the king of Edom. So they're starting to, it's time to go into the promised land for the second generation. He sends messengers over to Edom, you see at the very bottom. And, uh, and, and he says, Thus your brother Israel has said to you, You know all the hardship that has befallen us, that our fathers went down to Egypt, we stayed in Egypt for a long time, The Egyptians treated us and our fathers badly, but we cried out to the Lord. He heard our voice. He sent an angel. He brought us out of Egypt. Now behold, we are at Kadesh, a town on the edge of your territory. And they asked permission. Please let us pass through your land. So he's asking permission to get from here and to go up to here, which is where, or here, which is where the Lord wants them to, I'm sorry, here, where the Lord wants them to enter into the promised land. So the only way is to go through Edom. So he asked the king of Edom for permission to travel through their land. Uh, and it says, uh, he says, we will not pass through the field nor the vineyards. We're not going to drink the water from the well. We will go along the king's highway. So they're going to stay on the road, uh, not turning from the right or the left until we pass through your territory. We're just trying to get through. We're trying to get on the other side of Edom. Uh, and, and Edom, it says, however, said, you shall not pass through us or I will come out with the sword against you. So the king of Edom says, no. And if you try, then we will fight. Um, again, the sons of Israel said to him, we'll go up by the highway. If my livestock drink any of the water, we'll pay for it. Uh, just let us pass through my feet uh, um, on my feet. Nothing else. Uh, but the king of Edom said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against him. With a very heavy force and a strong hand. So to, 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 they're just showing the threat's real. If you come into our territory, we will fight. Um, and so, verse 21, thus Edom refused to allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So we know that from Numbers 20. And now, Deuteronomy 2.1 makes a lot of sense. If you read Deuteronomy 2.1, here's what it says. Then we turned and we set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. As the Lord spoke to me, and we circled Mount Seir for many days. So the Red Sea, again, in your map, is the opposite direction. Um, it's, it's, it's down here. And so basically they're setting out from, where are we at? Kadesh Barnea, and they're going to head south. They want to get here, but they're going to head south to go around the entire territory of Edom. That makes a lot of sense, because when you read he's, they circled the mountain for many days, in my head, I just pictured him circling around a mountain over and over and over. I mean, cause he, and I thought that was part of the 40-year wondering. And again, it's like, but the clarity of understanding, it's like, oh, so really what they're saying, they're, they're, they're circling an entire mountain range. It's a whole range of mountains, the mountains, mountains of Sierra, and it's going to take a long time to get all the way around this, simply because Edom said, absolutely not, and if you come through, we'll fight. Does that make sense? But again, that helps me when I read scripture to understand those things. So I hope it helps you. So that's what we're talking about. They're circumventing. They're going around Edom. Um, and the exact round is unknown. But there's many markers that as they went that give us uh, an understanding of where they're going. We know they're going around the territory. We know they're going around the mountains of Seir. Where they're going all the way down to the Red Sea before they can come up back around. So this is a long way. On the way, they get to Mount Hor. So they started by going this way. I don't know if it, you know, they left from here, they went over here, they started talking to the Edomites, and that's when they said no. But Aaron dies at Mount Hor, which we believe is right there. And so they, they have to go to Mount Hor, and then they start heading south. And so Aaron dies at Mount Hor. We know that from Numbers 20, verse 22. 
Um, and then after that, uh, they, they stayed at Mount Hor for 30 days. That could be while they were weeping and staying at Mount Hor that they sent out some, uh, a messenger to the king of Edom. And he said no. Again, we're not told timing of all that. But we do know that they at least made it to there. And then they started going south. Um, and again, like I said, I wish I'd put it up there. I had a, a map that I'd gotten out of a, a book that showed, uh, you know, just the arrows and kind of the direction. Uh, the best we know, but it goes up through Mount Hor and then all the way down around Edom. And yeah, so uh, anyway, Numbers 21, verse 4 through 9, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea. So that's just a, a, a road that goes down towards the Mount Sea around the land of Edom. And this is important. During this the setting out to go around Edom, it says that this is in Numbers 21. The people became impatient because the journey, because of the journey, and the people spoke against God and Moses and said, "Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness?" They're just saying the same thing that their parents said, and it makes sense if you think about it. Again, when you see the picture and you understand what's going on, they're like, "We could have just walked right through there. It would have taken a few days, and we'd be there. Now we got to walk around this entire mountain range, and basically, God just wants us to die again, not trusting the Lord." Um, and they said there's no food, there's no water. We, we load this miserable food, talking about the manna that God is raining out of heaven for them. And this says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the Israelites died. And so the people came to Moses and says, we've sinned because we've spoken against the Lord. And you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a standard, on a stick. And it came about if a serpent bit any man, if he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. I just want to throw that in there because now you've got timing of the story. Jesus brings the story up later and, and uses it as a type or an illustration of what he's going to do on the cross. Because, again, if you just look to him, if you believe in him, he and he alone can save you from eternal uh, a wrath, right? He's the only one that can save you from, from hell, from death, from your sin. But there's nothing you can do. You can't earn. You can't you get the poison out. You can't do anything like that. You just got to trust what the Lord says. So it's a cool story. But that happened during this trip around Edom at the beginning of the second, at the end of the first generation, at the beginning of the second generation. And so they're heading down around Edom. And it says, and the Lord spoke to me, verse 2 of Deuteronomy 2. He says, you've circled this mountain long enough. So God says in the midst of this journey that they, they've, gone, they've gone down around Seir long enough. He says, now turn north and command the people saying, you will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau. So God overrides it. So Edom says, you're not going to come through. They listen to what Edom says. They start going all around uh, Edom. And at some point, the Lord intercepts and goes, we're going through Edom at this point. All right? And so he says, uh, uh, they, they will be afraid of you. So God's going to put the fear of Israel into the Edomites, and they won't attack them. He says, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. So he's telling them, I'm not doing this so you can fight. You're not touching their land. He says, I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. So Israel is going to pass through, like we said, that eastern, northeastern part of Edom, and they are going to go through Esau's territory. Uh, the Lord's going to put the fear of God and the fear of Israel into the Edomites and allow them to pass through. But he tells the Israelites, don't touch them, don't fight them, uh, because that is not your land. And so even though the uh, king of Edom denied them passage, God overrides this refusal. He tells Moses to turn north to go through the eastern part of Edom. Um, and, uh, and he allows safe passage. Now, there's something that pops out here because it's going to pop out a few times here. Here in Deuteronomy 2, three different times, God tells the Israelites, I will not give you this piece of land because I have given this piece of land to someone else. Here we have it with Esau. So Esau, the, Edom belongs to Esau. That's not going to be the Israelites' land. When we get to verse 9, he's going to say the same thing about Moab. Do not provoke them to war. I will not give you any of their land. All of these become tests of obedience for the Israelites. You've got to remember, this is not a free-for-all. God just says, go and fight. You can take whatever piece of land. It's a certain piece of land. And, and, and there's you, you, everything, everything to do with the Israelites' victory in any battle has to do with their faithfulness to God, not their strength, not their uh, ingenuity, not their, their ability to, to fight. It's, are you faithful? God is the one that will deliver people into their hands. God is the one that will give them the land. And they can only have the land. God is allotted to them. Does that make sense? 
And so same thing with Ammon. So he says, I, don't harass or provoke Ammon. I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon. I've given that to Lot as a possession. So you've got to understand that. When we talk about this, when people use these analogies of, of God giving uh, you know, his people land and, and to make war and all that sort of stuff, that's all nonsense. God told Israel, there's a certain place that belongs to me that I'm giving to you. And there's certain people that you can easily wipe out because I'm judging them and I'm using you as an instrument and I'm giving you a land for, as a promise to your forefathers and I'm taking them out of the land as judgment for their sin. But that's it. And this is something that God does for Israel. It does not apply to us. It doesn't apply to any other nation. And so they're going in to take this land. They cannot take the land around them. And uh, I was going to show you in Genesis 36 and different, and um, uh, where God gives the land to these people. But you can go look all that up on your own. Let's keep moving. So they're going around Edom. Uh, and the next thing is they're going to get through Edom. And, and we're calling this the migration through Moab. They're going to migrate through Moab. So again, they're not taking the land of Moab. That doesn't belong to, him, to them. Uh, that belongs to the, the Moabites. It says, and we turned and we passed through by the way of the wilderness. Did I miss a verse? Uh, oh, yeah, I did. Deuteronomy 2. This, this is important. All right, Deuteronomy 2, 6 through 8. You shall buy food from them with money. So if you, as they go through Edom, they are going to do what Moses said they would do. You're going to purchase water so you're not taking anything from them. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. And so think about that. In the midst of the judgment, in the midst of the death of the first generation, the Lord has blessed them the entire time. And he sustained them for 40 years out in the middle of the desert. So again, even and think about that and apply. This is a good applicable principle. Even for his children... When we fell, when there's consequences, we talked about the first generation. It didn't mean that they were all in hell. They're not all unbelievers. They were just disqualified from being the people that were going to take the land. But the Lord blessed them. Even as they died in the desert, the Lord continued to bless them and their children. And he took care of his people. He always takes care of his people. So even when there's consequences in our life because of our sin, it's not that the Lord forsakes us if we belong to him. He will sustain us. He always blesses us. And there's blessings even in the midst of the consequences, right? Just remember who your father is. He's a patient, merciful, gracious, wonderful father. We need discipline often in our life because of poor decisions, things that we have done, and because of sin. But even with that, the Lord sustains his children and takes care of us and does what he says. And so he says, so we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Araba road, which that was the road on the, the side of the mountains that we looked at last week, away from Eloth, which is down by the, de- or the, um, the Red Sea, and from Ezion-Geber. And then he says this. Then they're going through Moab. Verse 9, and we turned, and we passed through by the way of the wilderness of Moab, and the Lord said to me, do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as possession, because I've given it to Ar, uh, I'm sorry, I've given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Again, real quick on the map, you see Moab down there, so they're going through Moab, and they're just passing through, they're not taking any of the land. The, 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 the one thing I want to camp out on for a second um, is what he says here in the parentheses. So after he talks about going through the land, he tells them in the parentheses uh, something very interesting. And I just want to hit this and talk about it for a second, and then we'll move on. But this is, I, I printed out some things in the back if you want to take it and read more about giants in the Bible. Uh, because uh, giants are mentioned many times in, the, in Genesis and then here in Deuteronomy. Uh, later in Amos and in and Judges, there's, there's mentionings of giants. Uh, it's not just Goliath and David. Um, but here, it mentions a bunch of these giants that were in the land. And giving you a little insight into this, I think is helpful. And it's just like, fat. to me, this was like fascinating. I was just like, this is amazing. So he says here, the Amim lived there formerly. So this is a parenthetical statement that, that Moses probably put in here to, to give some history of what was going on in these lands prior to Israel possessing them. Does that make he says, so talking about the land of Moab, the Amim lived there formerly, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. So the Anakim, uh, the Amim, the Horites, the Rephaim, all these names, anytime you see those names in the Bible, these were big people, giant people. Um, based on both biblical accounts and, and other historical accounts of the time, 
People think these were people that were anywhere from eight foot tall to 13 and a half feet tall. They're tall people. And again, you know, we, we think that's impossible, but we just killed all the big people. All the little people were afraid of the big people, and we killed them all. And, and, and God shows this very clearly in Scripture. It sounds funny, but that's what happens. <laughs> so, uh, so Moab was, again, the land of lost children, but there were giants in that land before Moab possessed the land. Um, and the explanatory note here is historical background. The original inhabitants of this land came from the line of Ham, from the line of Canaan in particular, uh, and they were a, a, a post-flood group who came down and settled this land. And both biblical and uh, historical accounts uh, of, of the inhabitants of this land talk about them being huge. Uh, the predecessors of, uh, of uh, the Moabites who lived in the land um, were, were big. There's a, there's a, a really cool uh, archaeological artifact that we found called the Moabite stone, the Mesha steel um, and in this, it, it talks about the people of this land. It actually even names the, the king, uh, king Mesha of Moab, which is mentioned in 2 Kings 3. It talks about the Israelites fighting against King Mesha. So this is just a cool artifact that has been found over in the Middle East that dates back to 840 B.C., um, but it talks about uh, this land. It talks about the, the Moabites, and it talks about... Um, uh, what all was happening in this land. So you can go look that up on your own. Uh, there's a lot of articles written about it. Um, but Second Kings 3 talks about Israel later. This is way later. Their fight against King Mesha and the Moabites. But when you look at these things in, uh, or these, these people groups in the Bible, the Anakim, the Rephaim, these are all ancient giants. And actually people have put down different, they've tried to identify where these giants were, the the, the Amorites uh, were in this area. Actually, I thought this was the, this is the wrong map. Um, here it is. You got the Amim down here in Moab. You got the Zuzim up here in Ammon. Uh, you got the, the uh, Arba. Arba was the father of Anak. Anak was the beginning of the Anakim, which are all the, the, the big people, the tall people. Uh, Kiriath Arba and Hebron are, are the same place. That was a major city in Canaan. It was like the, probably the, the, the main city. Uh, that is the place that um, Caleb goes up and attack, and God gives Caleb and his descendants that city. But it's called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who is probably the, the, uh, the for, main forefather of this people group that came from Canaan, the person Canaan, not the land of Canaan, who was the son of Ham from the boat when Noah came over. Does that make sense? Or Noah made it through the flood. There was just a, a people group that came from their descendants that were very, very large. Um, and this is, so when the Israelites go up into the land of Canaan, it already had a reputation of having big people in it. Um, and when they go up there and they say the people there are huge. Again, we're not talking about seven foot people. You got to think about that too. You know, Saul back in the day, it says Saul was uh, a, a head higher, right, than anyone else. So Saul was a pretty big Jew, and when Saul went out to fight Goliath, they were terrified. And Goliath was only nine foot and a half. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's big. But, you know, so when we talk about, th- think about that. When we talk about these people, they're, they're big. They've got to be big people. They're not just tall, lanky, eight-foot people because nobody's terrified of that, you know. And so they're strong, they're tall, and they make people like us terrified to fight them. And, and there's a reputation, like I said, both biblically and uh, uh, outside of the Bible of, of narratives of these people in the land of Canaan. And the Zuzim, the Amim, the Anakim, and the Rephaim are all the big people groups. Like I said, if you want to know more about it, there's a little article in the back uh, that, that does some study on it and gives you some insight. But it's just good to know because it helps you make sense, right? When they go into the land, they say there are giants in the land. There literally were giants in the land. Not 30 feet tall. But big people. There's, uh, again, if you look at that article, it talks about there's giant lots of things, right? You know, you got little cats and then you got tigers that are way bigger cats, you know? And then you got like uh, dragonflies and we have uh, fossils of dragonflies that are like two feet big, you know? And just so obviously God has made other species that have small versions and big versions. And they're just saying there used to be some big versions of us, but those have all been wiped out and they came through the line of ham. If you're just like, that sounds crazy, that's fine. Just go, but go read, learn more about it because it makes sense. They weren't exaggerating when they said there were giants in the land. There were big people in the land. Um, 
uh, Eugene Merrill in his commentary says, Deuteronomy itself provides most of the biblical information about the Rephites, the Rephaim. Virtually all of the Transjordan was their home at one time. Their reputation as a strong and numerous and tall people was well justified. Like I said, it's, it's even outside the biblical narrative. The Egyptian narrative talks about the land of Canaan, talks about the big people there, talks about their strength and power. Eventually they were driven out of Israel uh, the Israelite territory and took up residence in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. We know that from Joshua 11, which again makes sense with the narrative because when David comes along many years later, it's, it's Goliath from Gath. All the giants in David's time come from that region in Philistia because it's probably the only region left where some of these big people uh, migrated after they were driven out of the land by God. Um, the home of the Philistine giant, such as Goliath. The famous battlefield known as the Valley of Rephaim also supports the presence of these giants, and that's referred to in Joshua and in 2 Samuel. So again, there's lots of references to these giant people in the Bible. One of the other places in Genesis 14, so this is neat. This is during Abraham's time when Abraham was sojourning through this land. So he was just traveling through, living there. He went down to Egypt, came back up, went over Philistia, came back. But during that time, there was a king named Kedorlamir, Kedorlamir, however you say his name. And, uh, and he was a very powerful king. This is one of the things that established Abraham as a name there in that land. Because Kedorlamir, and, the, and he got a group of other kings together, probably a group of small people like me and you. And, and they're like, we're going to take the land away from the big people. And so he got them all together. And they came out. They went particularly after all the big people. That he went out, they came out and defeated the Rephaim there. They went and they took, um, defeated the Zuzim. They went to the Amim. So they're going to all these different, probably, tribes of the giant people, and they're taking the land. Because, again, you don't want to live in fear of these people that are twice your size and can, and can wipe you out. And so Kedolamir and all of his people, and the Horites, which are also big people, um, and they turned back, they came to that place in, in Kadesh, which is neat, so we're at the bottom of the land, and they conquered the country of the Malachites, also the Amorites who lived in Hazan Tamar. So this is early prehistory, Abraham's time, but you got Kedolamir here who goes through and tries to wipe out all the major giant groups so he can establish himself as a king. Um, and so he didn't wipe them all out. Abraham actually defeats him, uh, and, uh, and then... Um, uh, so some of these descendants were still there by the time Israel comes back to take the land. And that's the people that they're afraid of. They're afraid of the Anakim. They're afraid of the Rephaim. They're afraid of the Amorites. They're afraid of the Amim and the Zuzim because these are all big people. So anyway, there's a little bit of giant history uh, and, uh, and, and what the Bible says about it. So back to the narrative, Deuteronomy 2.13, it says, Now, he says, Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourself. So he crossed over the brook Zered. And just to give you a picture of where we're at, they're crossing over Zered into the land of Moab. And so now they're entering into that territory, and they're going to walk through Moab. It says, Now the time came it took us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years. So from the time they left uh, Kadesh from the 12 spy thing until the time they got to this brook was 38 years. So that includes the wanderings. That includes the narrative that we just talked about around Edom. And so the reason he says this is this is important because this is the end of the first generation. This begins, if you want to say it this way, the narrative of the second generation or the faithfulness of the second generation. The first generation is done. Until all the generation of men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord has sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them. So there's no way they could have survived. If they, if they left the camp, they die. If they try to make it to the land, they, there's no way that the first generation would make it in because, again, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. This verse is important. This is like a, a pivotal verse. So it came about when all the men of war had finally died and perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, saying, Today you shall cross over Ar, the border of Moab. So crossing over this brook is really important. This is almost like the beginning of the second generation, the beginning of taking the land, the beginning of the faithfulness of this generation to do what the Lord said. And everything from this point forward is different. Now we get into battle. Think about that. First generation never fought. First generation had no battles. The only battle they tried was the one they did in their own. They got driven out by the Canaanites, right? And so now the second generation, it's just victory, victory, victory. The only time there's no victory is when they don't trust the Lord. They do something the opposite of what he says. And we'll get to that when we get to that. But um, in his commentary, Peter Craigie said this, The crossing of the Zered marked an important point in the history of the wilderness wanderings. Thirty-eight years had elapsed since the departure of the Israelites from Kadesh Barnea. During that time, the rebellious generation who had been debarred from the promised land by the oath of the Lord had all died. 
The language with which they are described is slightly sarcastic. Uh, they are called men of war, that first generation, uh, which is just what they should have been had they not failed to obey the command of the Lord. The crossing of the Zerid here seems to mark a new beginning, just as the crossing of the Red Sea had marked the new beginning of freedom from Egypt, from Egyptian bondage. So the crossing of the Zerid marked freedom from the oath of the Lord against the men of war. Does that make sense? The oath is done. The men are dead. Now we're going to take the land like the Lord swore to Abraham. Soon the crossing of the Jordan would mark the beginning of a new era in the freedom of the promised land. I just think that's neat. Like I said, before I studied this, never thought about the Zerid River. You know what I mean? And there you see it. That was the end of the first generation. They're walking through Moab at this point. And it's neat because at that point, you, do, you start watching the Lord uh, do his thing. Um, and so, uh, so that takes us to, uh, I missed this. Oh, we did that. All right. So now we're in Ammon. So, again, going back to the map, we've gone around Edom, we've traveled through Moab, we've crossed the Zerid River, and now we're about to uh, go into the Ammonite territory there. And if you can see this, this is the land of Ammon, but there's a problem here. You got like a cancer right here. And this is where the Amorites, uh, a Canaanite group, uh, and they're big people, came and they took part of Ammon's land. All right, so this land belonged to Ammon. The Amorites have taken over part of their land. And so we're going to cross into the land of Ammon, but we're going to, this is going to be the first engagement in battle with the Canaanites, even though it's on this side of the Jordan. So Deuteronomy, we're in verse 19, if you are still following along in the Bible. And, um, and we're going to look at Ammon now. So this is Adventures in Ammon. And he says this, When you come opposite of the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them. I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon. So remember that. Uh, as a possession because I've given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, since I went so deep into the first one, we're not going to do the giants again. But here's another parenthetical statement that tells you about this piece of land that used to be inhabited by the uh, Zamzumim or the uh, um, Zuzim. I think that's what they call them in Genesis 14. Same thing, just like the Amim down in Moab, the Zuzim up in Ammon were a, a giant people group, um, and they used to possess this land, and, and they were formerly of the Rephaim and the Anakim. Again, that's going to be important because both of these kings are going to be big people, and one of them is mentioned, Og, king of Bashan, who is, uh, they actually talk about how big his either bed or coffin is, and it's huge. Um, but all that being said, we're going up into Ammon's territory he tells a little bit about the former inhabitants. They were all giant people. And then he tells them at the very end, arise, set out, pass through the valley of Arnon, which is the border. So they're going to go through another wadi, another valley, another gorge with the river going through it. And that marks the territorial boundary between Moab and Ammon. And that's where we're at. So again, I told you Ammon is one of the sons of Lot um, uh, through his incestuous, incestuous relationship. And now they have this Border, the Arnon that he says down here is the northern border of Moab, the southern border of Ammon. Um, and like I said, there's giants in the land, and you can read more about those over there. Actually, this is interesting Interesting here at the end. The Avim, we don't know much about, but it may just be another group of giants. Uh, but the, the Kaftorim, uh, who came from Kaftor, that's the Philistines' ancestors. So, again, they actually came from Ham. They came from Canaan. So, uh, that, that line from the boat, they went down to Egypt. Uh, Mizarim is named after them, the Egyptian town. And then some of them migrated over to what we believe they went to Crete, the island uh, in the Mediterranean. And they came from there to Philistia. And this was their former name. But by the time you get to Samuel and you get that narrative, that's the Philistines. And so anyway, so they had, uh, they had actually come, the Philistines had come and taken part of that land, which again, you see on the map here, they came and carved out a little section in the land of the giants, defeating the Avim, and the Philistines are going to live there. But they were called the Kaftorim uh, back in the day. So again, it just gives you a little biblical history to help you to see how these people ended up in these places, because the Philistines become a major enemy later, but not, not yet. Um, and so we're going through Ammon. Uh, they passed the Valley of Arnon. And I'm going to move on to the, the next part. But real quick, in Numbers 21, actually, this is kind of cool. We don't know exactly the Valley of Zerid and, and what the wadi is and what the stream is. Well, that's what the things I read said. I don't know if anybody's been over there and if you know better. 
But the, the Arnon River is very well documented. It's, it is the border. This is, this is, so it kind of helps you to see. When they go down into the valley of the Arnon, what it is is they're camping out down in here somewhere. But it's basically a gorge that has, they call it a wadi or a valley or a gorge that the river has carved. And so this is the Arnon Valley. Uh, so that's the border between Moab and Ammon. That's a, a panorama. They built a dam up here now. And so there's a lake up here, but you still got the, the valley that the river has carved out between the, the two places. And this is down, you can kind of see it. Yeah, so it's kind of cool. I don't know. Seeing those things is helpful to me. That's the border between Moab and Ammon, and that's down in the valley. So they're camping out down there. Um, and it says, from there they journeyed. They camped on the other side of the Arnon. So they're down in this, this valley which is in the wilderness that comes out the border of the Amorites. Oh, this is from Numbers. For the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. So now think about that. You got Moab and Ammon, both the Lot's children that own that land. But the Amorites have taken over part of Ammon's land. And so this border is the border between the people of Moab and and the Canaanites now, the the enemies, the Amorites. Therefore, it said the brook of the war, uh, in the book of the wars of the Lord, and, and this makes numbers make sense. Again, I've read this so many times, had no idea what it was talking about. And then after learning some of this history, seeing the river and, going, and knowing what's going on, this little poem makes sense. So it says, in the book of the wars of the Lord, Wahab in Sufa, in the wadis of the Arnon, a wadi is, is a, a valley. That's, the, that's the, the valley that the river is down in. Uh, and the slope of the wadis that extends to the site of Ar and leans on the border of Moab. So this is... Uh, this is just talking about that valley. It says, then they went through the, oh, no, where'd it go? I left it off. Uh, basically, it talks about uh, the, 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 this was taken over by the, the, oh, my goodness, Amorites. And the Amorites took this piece of land, and, and, and now they live there, and that's, that's how they, they are in the land. I, it's just kind of cool. So you go back and you read the book of the, uh, you see this little thing in Numbers, and you're like, that makes so much sense now. It's Moab's land, Ammon's land, the, the, the Amorites came in, they took a piece of that land. Um, and in Judges, again, you got the whole border of the Arnon and all that. So, I didn't write this down, but in his commentary, Peter Craigie says, The crossing of the brook Zered marked the end of the rebellious generation, like we just said, on the bottom of Moab. The crossing of the Arnon marked the beginning of Israel's possessing the land. So they went through Moab, took nothing, went through, uh, or got to the border of Ammon. They're not touching Ammon. But once they cross that Arnon, they're going to attack the Amorites that are in, uh, in, the, uh, in the land of, of Ammon. And so that is, oh, I did write that quote down. There it is. Um, they're going to go in. They're going to attack the Amorites. And Sion is the king of the Amorites and his kingdom. The whole thing is called Heshbon as well, but their capital city is Heshbon. And that is what they're going after next. So, again, I hope this helps, and I hope this isn't tedious. Here's where we get into the first action of the narrative, all right? They've just been walking, 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 visiting all their relatives. Now it's time to fight, all right? So now they're going to defeat the uh, king, or the Sion, the Amorite king of Heshbon, all right? So, uh, and, and this is important too. At the very beginning of Deuteronomy 24, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of neat because Moses, you see in Deuteronomy 127 where we just left off, He's telling them, you grumbled in your tents, you said, because the Lord hates us. He has brought us here uh, out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites and destroy us. That's what their parents said. And then that was what brought about the curse, the 40-year wandering. Well, here here they are again, and they're about to walk into the land. And he says, arise, set out, pass through the valley of the Arnon. Look, I have given Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. So this is the first time God says fight. And he's not saying do it on your own. He's saying, I'm giving him to you. You be faithful to take it. Do what I said. Your fathers didn't do it. Said they said something about God that's blasphemous. He didn't lead them out there to kill him. He actually led them out there to give him the land. And that's what drove him out into the wilderness. He's basically saying, don't do it again. Uh, And he says, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who when they hear the report of you will tremble and be in anguish because of you. What they're about to do is a big deal. Again, you got to remember, like Israelites are just a wandering people group. They're not soldiers and fighters. It doesn't mean they're weak and, and puny, but the people they're fighting are big people, powerful people. 
fierce some people, and Israel's going to wipe them out pretty easy. And that's going to begin to put the fear of Israel in the, and God is the one doing it. It's, it's the fear of what God is doing through Israel. But what's about to happen is going to be well known throughout the land. Again, if Sion and the Amorites weren't fierce and powerful people, this wouldn't be a big deal. It's just another group that came in, overtook a city. But they're going to, they're taking down a powerhouse. Just like the, the tale of, of Pharaoh's army being destroyed and Israel coming out of Egypt, that was well known throughout the land of Canaan. Well, this story is going to be well known after it. So they're going to defeat Sion, king of the Amorites. Again, there's that map. If you look over here, this is his territory. Uh, Sion owned that uh, piece of Ammon. And then above that, we're going to get to Og next week, another Amorite king that was above there. So I'm sorry. Here's the rest of Numbers 21. This is what I was going to tell you about earlier. So this tells you, now that you know some of that stuff, it helps you read this old poem and go, I know what they're talking about. It says, for Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab. So he took it from Moab. I'm sorry, I was saying Ammon the whole time. And had taken all of his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. So, so this tells you that it was Sion that took this land from the people of Moab. Therefore, those who use Proverbs say, and here's a little poem, and you're like, oh, I know what it means. Come to Heshbon, let us build. So let the city of Sion be established. So this is Sion taking the land. For a fire went forth from Heshbon, a flame from the town of Sion. It devoured Ar of Moab, uh, the dominant heights of the Arnon. So again, you know where the Arnon is. Now we're talking about the heights on the other side of the Arnon. As the valley comes up, basically Sion came and he took that land from the king of Moab. And now he's possessing the land. And it is now Amorite territory, not Moabite territory. And now God's going to send Israel in there to take it back and to keep it. And that's what they're going to do. Um, so now they, they go over into the land. Oh, there's more. He says, uh, Woe to you, O Moab, you're ruined. O people of Chemosh. I, I, goodness, this is so cool. <laughs> On that little stone I showed you, it talks all about the God of Chemosh and the, and the uh, Moabites. Anyway, so here, basically, this is, this is the Amorites talking, basically being like, Chemosh is nothing. We just came in. We took the land. Your God is petty and nothing. He said he has given his sons as fugitive, his daughters into captivity to an Amorite king, Sion. But we have cast them down. Heshbon is ruined as far as Dibon. We have laid waste even to Nopha, uh, which reaches to uh, Madiba. So anyway, that just talks about the Amorite king, um, Sion coming in and taking that land and making a mockery out of the God of the Moabites. Um, and so anyway, so here we are, we're on the border. And Moses says, so I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sion, king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, let me pass through your land. I will travel only on the highway. I will not turn aside to the right or the left. There's some commentators who are like, Moses is being deceitful, you know, because God told him to fight. I think Moses is just being kind. He's just being honorable. Or he's honoring the king. He's like, hey, listen, if you just let us pass through, we're trying to get here. But he knows that, that God's going to incite the king to fight him. So Moses just says, hey, we'll just walk through. We're actually heading to Canaan. Uh, he says, uh, you'll sell me food for money so I may eat. I, again, I just think this is just showing honor. Give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for me until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving to us. Um, that didn't go well, but Sion, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand. Again, you get to kind of see the inner workings of God and what he does to the hearts and minds of kings. We saw this with Pharaoh in Egypt. This is always what the Lord's doing. So the Lord hardens hearts. The Lord controls all kings and kingdoms and all of that. Uh, and it says, uh, as he is today, the Lord said to me, see, I have begun to deliver Sion in his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. So, again, the Lord is giving it to him. He's preparing the conditions of the heart of the king so that the, the king won't let them pass through. He's hardening the king's heart. The king's going to come out to fight the Israelites. And the Israelites are going to defeat him because all of this belongs into the hands of God. Uh, if, to get, if you want to do this on your own, I don't have time to go into it right now, but it was fascinating. But there's a lot written about the Amorites, both biblical narratives and historic, like Egypt. Uh, there's a lot of Egyptian uh, stuff that we have found that talks about the Amorites uh, living in this area. 
like I said, the Amorites, it, you, it, we even have like their, their lineage and how they got there. Uh, and many Akkadian and Sumerian texts uh, talk about the Amorites, talk about the Amorites being a big people, talk about them being a powerful people, um, and talking about how they would travel from place to place and take over. It was almost like a, uh, it sounds like from what I was reading, a, a, a band of strong, tall nomads that would just come in and take land. They just would come in and take people's land and, and establish themselves and settle down there, which makes sense with this narrative. I mean, that's what they did for part of the land of Moab uh, and Ammon. Uh, these two kings came in and just took over. Um, so that was a, a neat little side study. But Sion had taken this land. Now it was time for the people of God to take it uh, back and uh, like we said, in Numbers, you have the, the account in the Bible of Sion coming and taking the land from Moab. Uh, Israel offered to move through the region in peace as they entered the promised land. Sion did not accept their terms. The Lord was doing all this to give him into their hands. Um, and, and again, you see how they peacefully moved through Edom, Moab, Ammon. They didn't touch any of them. And now they're here. And um, he says, so I sent messengers to uh, the wilderness of Kedemoth, he talks to Sion. Uh, Kedemoth, by the way, is eight miles north of the Arnon River, and so that's about where they were. Uh, they must have stayed in Kedemoth for a little while until they heard back from Sion. Uh, he asked them to pass through. God hardens his heart, and then we get to the actual battle. Um, it says, Then Sion, with all of his people, came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz. The Lord our God delivered him over to us. We defeated him with his sons and all of, uh, of his people. And so we captured all his cities at that time and utterly destroyed the men, women, and children of every city. We left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. From Aroer, which is on the edge of the Valley of the Arnon, so this is a southern border, um, and from the city which is in the valley, even Gilead, uh, which is the northern border, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon. So they didn't take anything that didn't belong uh, to, uh, they didn't take anything that belonged to Ammon. They didn't take anything that wasn't under the, the rule of the Amorite king Sion. All on the river of Jabuk and the cities of the hill country and wherever the Lord our God had commanded us. Again, so we have the, the different borders. Uh, this is the river Jabuk, which is up here. Uh, the river, the Arnon, from here, from Arawer uh, uh, up to here. So Gilead's up in here somewhere. They took all of this region. They didn't take anything from Ammon, only what the Lord allotted to them. But what's important about that is you see their obedience. You see their submission. They didn't do any more or any less than exactly what God told them to do. This is faithfulness. They trusted what God said. In their pride, they didn't go, man, we can defeat them. We can totally take Ammon. You know, if we can defeat them, we can totally take parts of Moab. They didn't do that. They, they did what God said. They also didn't tuck tail and run like their fathers. They listened to what the Lord said. They went up. They took exactly what the Lord said. And the Lord gave it to them exactly like he said. Nothing more, nothing less. And I think that's important because it just shows the faithfulness of this generation. It's a good applicable principle for you and for me to listen to what he says don't do anything more or anything less. That's hard, right? A lot of times in our flesh, we want to do more. You know what I mean? We want to get out in front of the Lord, be the Holy Spirit in other people's lives, do something that seems more faithful than what he's actually called us to do. Or on the other side of it, we're, we're fearful or we don't do what the Lord's called us to do or we're enslaved to some sin or something like that. And so we must obey, but we must not get outside of our place. We have to stay where the Lord has called us and do what the Lord has called us to do. That is a direct applicable principle uh, from this narrative. Um, and so it's just neat. This is the first time that we see a, 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 an, a circumstance where the second generation uh, was faithful to the God. And we got to see the faithfulness of God to do exactly what he said he would do. I'm doing this. I'm giving it to you. Go. They did. He gave it to them. And, and, it, and the text makes it sound simple. We don't even know. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but there's no narrative here of any Israelites dying. Imagine that. They're fighting, because when they do fight against people and they get defeated, we, we hear about the deaths. It may be that every Israelite that went up and was faithful to the Lord, there was no death on the Israelite side. They wiped out the entire kingdom of the Amorites, which is a powerful, giant people group. Again, you would think about that. That would be in the news, right? The people of the lands would have heard real quick, not, not a single Israelite died, and they wiped out Heshbon and Sion and all of his kingdoms and killed every single person in every village. That's crazy. But that's what God did. 
And so anyway, they, they took that whole land. Um, and, and I think that's the end of the narrative, right? We did this. Uh, yep, we're there. All right, so we're going to end with this quote. Uh, and this, again, comes from Peter Craigie. And again, I thought this was a really good quote to end our study today and to remind us of the, the, the application. At this point, the, the didactic nature of Moses' address becomes very clear. When the people had been rebellious at Kadesh Barnea, they had claimed that the cities they would have to attack were fortified up to the sky, and in their fear, they had refused to obey the Lord. In the conquest of Sion's kingdom, the people were obedient, and their God was with them under those circumstances There was no obstacle too great for them. Whereas the events at Kadesh Barnea had served as a severe warning in Moses' address, the victory over Sion is employed as a source of strength and encouragement. The Lord our God delivered everything to us. The Israelites did not, in the elation of victory, exceed their orders and grasp more territory for themselves than had been permitted by the Lord. The territory described in this verse is that of the Ammonites, uh, the Israelites had already been commanded. I think that was supposed to be Amorites. Been commanded. Uh, I'm sorry. The verse that described uh, is that of the Ammonites. The Israelites had already been commanded not to attack. So they didn't take any of the Ammonite land. So all that being said, that's what we want to take away from all this. You see basically a better historical understanding of what's going on. You get to see the second generation in their first battle and obedience to the Lord and his faithfulness to give them the land. He's fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. He's showing his faithfulness. But it also reminds you, do exactly what he says. Nothing more, nothing less. Trust him and his wisdom. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't worry about the things that seem too big if he's called you to do that, whether that's victory over your own personal sin or something like that, and you just feel like my sin's too big. It's like, well, stop. Stop believing lies and listen to what he says. Or if your role as a husband or a father, whatever it is. I mean, there's things that we can be fearful of or we're afraid to do because we just feel like we're incapable. We're not built for that. And again, that's, that's looking at God and going, you made me insufficient to do the work you've called me to do. Or uh, you're not faithful enough to do what you've said you would do. We have to trust him. We have to do what he says. We have to lean on him and not on our understanding. But nothing more and nothing less. Let me pray for us.